This parable tonight that we're studying, I call this one the Rubik's Cube parable uh, because when I see a Rubik's Cube, I see pretty much impossibility. Uh, I have never been one to, you know, pull off the Rubik's Cube thing. You engineers are already rolling your eyes at me. You've been doing it since you were like, I don't know, in Euro or something. Uh, I've never been able to do it. The closest I've gotten was this summer. Our oldest daughter, Lucy, really wanted to get a Rubik's Cube, so we bought her one. And then she and I watched YouTube videos for about three weeks. And uh, straight. And we've got it to this point. It's still not finished yet. It's on our shelf in a room right by our bed. And it's to this point where the top the top row, like it's yellow at the top, but like the, the sides of the top row aren't quite there. I got a couple more steps. So when I see Rubik's Cube, like I want, I want there to be a blue side. Like I want there to be a yellow side and a white bottom. Like I want there to be six walls that just fall into place. I want like, but it's so hard to get there. And when I come to a parable like this, and I really think this is one of the trickiest parables like in all of Scripture. I want, it to, I want to twist the boxes. I want to move it around to be like, okay, yep, there it is. Perfect picture, right? Easy to understand. Like, it's complete. This one doesn't work that way. And I, I want to read you what some commentaries say before we even read the passage. Three commentary quotes. Straight from, like, the most brilliant people who study these types of things. One said, of all the parables Jesus taught, this one is the most puzzling. Another one says, this parable is most difficult. Another one says, this one is problematic. So I thought, why not bring it to RUF? Uh, let's, let's see where it goes. It's been a fun passage to study. Because even the difficulty, because I want to make a point before we even get to the point. Even the difficulty of a passage like this makes a point on its own. And here's, here's part of it. You can't put Jesus in a box. Like, we want to go to passages that are just easy to understand sometimes. We want to go to places that just kind of like speak to the moment. And we want Jesus to fit into our world. We want to turn the squares and make Him work for us. And Scripture doesn't work that way. And says Scripture, we have to take it on its own account. Presents itself and we have to respond to it. And so we come to this parable. And so we try to think through it, study it together, and respond to who Jesus says He is. And Really, isn't that the lesson of the parable so far? Think about how Jesus has gone out of his way to make the point that he doesn't fit in a box. He's going against the grain. He's confusing the religious people and he's comforting the sinners. In our parables, the priest and the Levite did not stop. But the one who saved the man was the one you would never expect to get involved. Jesus flips the story. The son who wasn't prodigal was the one who was more distant from the father. The rich fool was found to be bankrupt in his heart. Those who thought the great banquet was for them, like we talked about last week, were, ended up being left out of the party. Like, that's what Jesus does. And so we respond to him as he reveals himself. So that's what we're going to do. Jesus doesn't fit in a box. He's outside the box. But we do believe that with the Holy Spirit's help, God speaks through his word to his people today. And he speaks even tonight. And so we're going to look at this passage and consider the most puzzling parable in all of Scripture. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. He said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? 
Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. This is the problem. Verse eight. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this is the very words of God, and it will stand forever. So how's that for a parable? All right, I want to, my outline is so simple. We're going to talk about the parable, the point, and then how it applies. Here's the parable. What happened in the story? There's this rich master who had a manager overseeing his estate. This guy's basically middle management. He kind of handles the day-to-day operations of the business for his master. He represents him in his affairs. He keeps up the books. He collects revenue from those who might owe him. And so we learn from the opening words in this passage that this guy was not good at his job. Like, he just was not good at this position. And he was about to lose his job. And the master was about to come to him and fire him. And so what's interesting is the guy doesn't even get defensive or make excuses. He's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Like he knows that he's doing his job very poorly. Um, you're, you almost picture him like shrugging his shoulders and accepting it. So he set, accepted these consequences. And he goes through this little internal processing of like, oh, no, what do I do now? And you hear him move from accepting that he's been fired to feeling hopeless to to like, I've got a plan. And you see that like movement all along in verse three. He he sees that he's not strong enough to do the hard work of manual labor. And he said he's too proud to beg. You know that song, ain't too proud to beg. He was too proud to beg. And so then he comes up with a scheme, a shrewd, dishonest, slimy scheme. Before he turns in his books, he takes a risk. He knows that he doesn't know the future, so he makes plans to live in light of the unknown. All right, you remember the episode of The Office. This is important. Like, this is the parable. Think about this. Kelly and I just saw this episode the other day. You know the episode of The Office where Dwight is jealous that Jim got the co-manager position. This is kind of like middle later on, fifth, sixth season, something like that. And so he wants to get Jim fired from the co-manager position. But the way he goes about it in this particular episode is that he's nice to everyone. You remember this? So that they will owe him something. 
Remember, he buys these bagels. And he goes to New York City, he gets bagels, and he gets everyone's favorite bagel. And he walks around the office, and he's like, Stanley, I got you your favorite bagel. And Stanley's like, okay, thanks. And he's like, you owe me. And then he goes over to Phyllis, and he gives Phyllis a bagel. And she says, thank you, Dwight. And he says, you owe me. And he just goes around the office, and he essentially indebts everyone to himself. And then in the talking head, when he's kind of in the room talking to the camera, he says... Can a guy just buy some bagels for his friends so they'll owe him a favor which he can use to get someone fired who stole a co-manager position from him anymore? Jeez, when did everyone get so cynical? <laughs> so, <laughs> Dwight K. Shrew. That is exactly what's happening in this parable. There's this guy who knows that he's going down and he's going to indebt people to himself so that they will owe him when he needs them. That's essentially his plan. He shows them kindness in hopes that they will show him kindness. We would call that manipulation. Some might call it good planning. First, he visits the guy who oversees the olive trees on the property, and he says, what do you owe? And he says, 100 measures of oil. And he says, let's just call it 50. Write 50 on that bill. He cuts the debt in half. And the other guy, the wheat farmer, he says, what do you owe my master? He says, 100 measures of wheat. And he says, okay, let's call it 80. Write 80 on your bill. And he cuts the debt down. That's what we would call a win-win scenario for these three people. The debtors are forgiven of what they owe, even more than expected. And now the manager has a few folks who will scratch his back when the time comes. Win-win. But who is this not a win-win for? It's the master, right? The debtors are forgiven. The manager has a plan, but the master is not getting what's owed him. The manager doesn't know how this is going to be received, so he's taking a risk. He's actually counting on the generosity of the master, which is what then makes him kind of have this scheme in the first place. So he goes to the master. He kind of hands over the books. He tells him what he's done. And you can just picture him with like a nervous, kind of grimaced, unsure face. And be like, so? Pause the story. What, like, what do you think the master would do? He would lose it. You idiot. Like, you just wasted my money. But that's not what he does at all. And that's kind of what makes this parable problematic and and sometimes difficult to think about here's the problem jesus doesn't have the master be angry at the man instead verse 8 the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness he commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness what in the world is jesus talking about why would Jesus commend the dishonest manager? I've thought about this question a lot. Is he commending dishonesty in and of itself? Um, opponents of the faith have used this passage to make that point throughout history. See, Jesus isn't trustworthy after all. Like he actually applauds dishonesty. But we could simply turn to hundreds of other passages to know that that simply isn't the case. It, the problem would be with our understanding, not with Jesus's words. It's not who he is. So what is it? What is there to be commended in this guy's actions? Here's the point, I think. The manager owned his failure, 
He wisely realized that he needed a plan for his future, and he put himself in a place of dependency on others to care for him when the need came. Let me put it this way. I think what the master is commending the manager for is not for his dishonesty, but for his wise planning. And then Jesus is using that point to speak. Think about it. He was uncertain of his financial stability, so he took a risk to see that his monetary needs would be met. He was uncertain of the master's generosity, so he took a risk in hopes that his job would be restored. He was uncertain of his future, so he took relationship risk to see that he would have a community to care for him when the need came. And so that's why the master is commending him for his wisdom and planning. He's not praising the motivation, but he's applauding the fact that he wisely thought about his future and acted accordingly. It's kind of like if... um, It's like commending someone for breaking out of prison. Uh, Alcatraz, 1962. These four guys broke out of prison. Two were brothers and they had two other guys. And the way they did it, they tucked paper mache heads that they created somehow with scraps underneath their beds with kind of like the sheets pulled up on the pillow to make it look like they were in their bed. And then they climbed through an old utility corridor in the prison, just like the show Prison Break, basically. And they climbed through this corridor, and they somehow created an inflatable raft. And then they, like, went off into the ocean and escaped Alcatraz. They escaped Alcatraz Island, never to be heard from or seen again, ever. These guys completely got away with it. 1962. I commend them. (laughs) Right? I mean, like, they got off Alcatraz. I don't commend them for being bad dudes, and they really were bad, like they were terrible guys. But I commend their wisdom in figuring out a way to work this out. All right, are you, you following the logic a little bit. Now, how does this apply to us? The dishonest manager is being praised for his wisdom and planning for the future, for counting on his master's generosity, and essentially he's leveraging the generosity to use his own resources to secure his future. So how is this relevant for us? So let, me, let me give you a phrase that we can start wrapping this thought around. One of the phrases that comes up a lot in Jesus' teaching and even in some of the parables is this idea of how much more. Jesus says this a lot. How much more? One of the easier examples to remember is when he's talking a lot about anxiety and worrying about the future. What does Jesus say in his teaching? This is one of our girls' favorite stories to look at in the Jesus Storybook Bible because it has really pretty cute pictures. When he talks about the, uh, the birds, and he says, you're worrying about what you're going to wear. <clears throat> Consider the birds. Or, or you're worrying about you're not going to have your needs. Consider the birds. They don't work on their own. They, don't, they neither sow nor reap is what he says. Yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than they? And then he says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory is not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? I think this parable kind of fits in that how much more category. Where Jesus is saying to those of us who are the sons of light, as he puts it, That if this dishonest manager who is uncertain of his future can live in light of the unknown, how much more can you, who serve a sovereign God, 
You who have been given riches in Christ, you who have been cared for and provided for, how much more can you live in light of what is known? Now, let's practice this. I'm going to give you three ways that we can begin to work this out. One, if you are a Christian, you can count on God's generosity. You can count on God's generosity. The, the manager was counting on the master's generosity that he really would forgive this debt. You can count on God's generosity. Both in a spiritual sense, God's grace poured out abundantly for you because our sins poured out on Jesus on the cross. But also there is a true like monetary application here. And that's Jesus brings that up, doesn't he, in the passage? He talks about money in this passage. Earthly wisdom. And that's what the how much more, by the way, is comparing earthly wisdom with heavenly wisdom. And earthly wisdom would tell you that, you know, you need to take your money. You need to take your time. You need to take your possessions and you need to hoard them, like save them, hold them so close Don't let anyone take them away from you. But heavenly wisdom says that all that you have really isn't yours in the first place. Everything you have is a gift of God. Your intellect, your talents, your resources, your bank account, they are all gifts from your creator assigned to you for the purposes of you using them to serve him and to point others to him. This passage helps us know that We can actually serve others with our own resources because we have been given riches in Christ. We will have what we need monetarily, but if we begin to trust and serve that money, we will miss the riches that we have in Christ. That's what he says, right? There's a strong warning in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot. Jesus couldn't say it more plainly. You cannot serve God and money. You can serve money. You won't be serving God. But you can serve God with your money. And actually, you can start now. And I've mentioned this before. Maybe it sounds absurd that I talk to college students about their money. I know what that sounds like. But here's the deal. Your future is not as uncertain as the dishonest manager. It's not. You know that you serve a loving God. If you're a Christian, you serve a loving God who will supply your needs. Allow that reality, that heavenly reality, to influence the way you spend your earthly dollars. Loosen up your wallets for the purposes of heavenly riches. You know what I mean? Like literally in college, find a missionary to send $50 to sometime before the end of the year. Like, tithe to your local church as we've talked about before. Because let your college self be a model for your future self, the one that's going to have the actual money. Let your college self model the heart that's needed for your future self to follow. We can serve God with our money. But it's not just our money. It's not just our financial resources. What about your personal resources, your encouragement, your sense of humor, You know, the way that you welcome people and are are kind and generous. Count on God's generosity. That He has given you all that you need and He has made you who you are. Count on God's generosity. 
so that you can be freed up to give to others without expecting something in return. Okay, that's the first practice. The second one is this. Count on God's community. Earthly wisdom says you can do this. You were made for this. You don't need anyone else. You get your due. You are in control of your life. That's earthly wisdom. It's a loud voice. We hear it all the time. But that's earthly wisdom. Eternal wisdom is beginning to realize that you actually can't do anything on your own. You can't. You need to surround yourselves with other believers who will encourage you and build you up and stand with you and fight with you and remind you of who you are to God. You can't fight sin alone. You need a community to struggle with you and encourage you and to pray for you and remind you of why you continue to fight. You can't Figure out life alone. You need the collective wisdom of a godly community around you when it comes to making big decisions. Like changing your major, transferring to another school, or entering into that relationship you have questions about. Or taking that big internship that would put you in a very lonely place. You need people to speak in to those places. You need a community around you to make these decisions. And I would encourage you to not just seek that community among your peers. That's so important. I hope you find it in this room or among other campus ministries that you're invested in. But I want to encourage you also to find it from people who are not in the same place in life as you. To find mentors across generations, particularly in your local church. Wherever you're worshiping, there are families who would love to care for you. And a lot of times they don't know how to begin that, so you have to begin that. And it literally looks like finding a family that you have a conversation with and saying, hey, could I come over to your house sometime? I have some questions. Or could I meet you for coffee one morning? Count on God's generosity to provide mentors in your life and encouragers during this important time. You can count on that in the local church. And here's another thing. You can't fight sin alone. You can't make decisions alone. You can't even believe the gospel alone. We need a community around us at all times. A community of believers to remind us of what we believe. Because we simply forget. And we so often begin to believe the confusing mixed messages from the world around us or the voices inside our own heads much more loudly than we hear the voices of Scripture. The singular voice of God's Word in Scripture. Let me illustrate it this way. One of my favorite um, uh, interviews I've ever heard is this lady in San Francisco named Julietta Corelli. She's one of the most intriguing people. You'll hear me talk about her other times, I'm sure. But let me tell you about Julietta. Julietta owns a um, toast shop in downtown San Francisco. A toast shop. In fact, she gets a lot of credit with like, you know how millennials love avocado toast? Um, that's a thing. I love it too, but she kind of started this like toast world in San Francisco. The name of her shop is called, you could look it up, Trouble Coffee and Coconut Club. The Trouble Coffee and Coconut Club, Julietta Corelli. Let me tell you some other ways that she's interesting. So she, she dresses the same way every day. Uh, she's got an interesting look. She always wears like a flowery crop top 
with like a scarf around her neck. And she wears like a, a, a skirt that's very bright. Um, she has um, like lots of tattoos, sleeves of tattoos. She has tattooed freckles on her face. She has long red hair, usually in pigtails. One of the articles about her that I read described her as like a hipster pippy long stockings. So like, just picture that. That's Julietta Corelli. Okay, another interesting thing about Julietta is that she does the same thing every day on purpose. Um, she walks to work every day or takes her bicycle. And she, she goes the exact same path, kind of weaves her way through downtown San Francisco to her coffee shop. And she takes the same path every day. No matter if there's construction work or whatever, she will go along that path and she'll just meet people every day along her path. Every day. Same times for the most part. And tries to get to know people as she's going along. The third thing that's really interesting about Julietta is she has a disorder called schizoaffective disorder. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I actually had a student with schizoaffective disorder and I was able to learn more about it from her. It's like schizophrenia with some other things going on too. Um, it's essentially, um, at different times, you, you can really kind of hear voices or kind of working through things in your mind. But also, she blacks out a lot. And when she blacks out, she completely forgets who she is. Like, she continues to operate, but she has no idea who she is or where she is. Which is why she wears what she wears, has the tattoos that she has. Is why she takes the same path every single day. You know what she's doing? She's built a community in her life to remind her of who she is when she forgets. Isn't that amazing? She's, I think she's one of the most amazing people around. I, I love listening to these interviews with her. But that is the picture of a Christian community that we so desperately need. Because we go through life, like you go across the campus. You're in and out of dining halls. You're in and out of dorm rooms. You're thinking about your future. And so often you can forget who you are. You need to build a community around you who are going to regularly remind you that you are a child of God. You are a son or daughter of the living God. And that means something. That means something for how you make the decisions that you make. It means something for the ways that you spend your time, the places that you go, the things you do when no one's looking. It means something. That you are a beloved child of God, forgiven washed in the blood of Christ. You need a community who's going to regularly remind you of that. Here's the third and final thing that we can count on. In light of knowing who you are, you can count on God's good plan for you. So the future was uncertain for the shrewd manager. You can identify with some of that, right? Uh, You live in an uncertain time. And that's part of why I love working with college students, because you, you, you are working through these huge decisions in your life. Where will you be next? How will you finish out this semester? How will you get through this very difficult thing that you're in the middle of right now? Who will you marry? Where will you live? What kind of job will you have? I mean, these things are huge decisions that you're working through regularly in college. Um, every year, RUF conferences, the, the Discovering God's Will conference or seminar is always one of the most populated ones. Because we're trying to work through these things. So if the manager made wise decisions in light of his uncertain future, how much more can we make wise decisions now in light of what we do know to be true about our futures? 
Okay, there's a lot we don't know, but there really is a lot you do know. Let me give you two examples that I know are on your minds a lot. If you know God's good plan for you is to pursue a career that will honor him and to get a job where you can serve him in whatever field that might be, then how much more, how much more should you pursue your school work with faithfulness and diligence? And I don't mean that in a guilt-motivated way. I mean that in like, this is your calling for now. This is your job. This is your field that God's called you to at this stage. Your calling for now is to be a student and a good student. God is calling you to an excellent career, but not yet. For now, he's calling you to be an excellent student. Because Jesus says it, didn't he? Faithful in a little now, so that you can be faithful in much later. So that's part of what you know. Here's another area, marriage. I don't think that's on anyone's mind in here, but in case it isn't one or two. If you know, or at least hope, that God's plan for you is to be in a marriage one day that honors Him and brings glory to Him, then how much more should you date now in light of that future? How much more should you date now in light of that future that you believe God might be calling you to down the road. And here's what I say if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, I actually know God's will for your marriage. You can talk to me afterwards. I will come to my office hours. I'll let you know. Now, I'll let you know now. You ready? If you're a Christian, God's will for your marriage is that you would be married to another believer and that you would honor God in that marriage. That's it. Like, that's God's will for you. And I know that may be an uncomfortable message for some of you. And and I also realize that, like, you don't know me that well. And you're kind of like, I'm offending you right now. And I know I haven't earned a lot of your trust. But let me just tell you, Scripture is very clear on this one. Very clear on this one. From Genesis to Revelation, we could work this one out. God's will for you as a believer is to be married, if if you're going to be married, is to be married to another believer. If that's true, then how much more should you date in light of that reality? So this informs two things. This informs who you date, and it informs how you date. Now, I'm going to spend a whole semester sometime on this, just these two things. <laughs> For now, I'm going to spend like 30 seconds. But it, it really does inform who you date. It informs the, the, the kind of person that you want to date, because here's a principle. You marry who you date. I don't know if you realize that. Like one of these days, one of those dating things turns into a marriage. And so you marry not just the kind of person you date, you actually sometimes will marry the person you date. And so you need to date in light of the kind of person you want to marry. So that's one thing. But it also informs how you date. It informs what you say with your words. How careful you are with what you communicate. You know, it informs the way that you talk about your futures together. Um, It informs what you do with one another physically. certainly informs that. Because another principle of dating is that you might not be dating your future spouse, but you probably are dating someone's. That really does help shape the perspective of how you date, right? Here's what I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to pull you back to this principle that Jesus is saying, you actually know way more about your future than you realize. Count on God's good plan for you and live in light now of that plan that's coming. Does that make sense to a degree? I know you hate me. We can work it out. 
we've got years to work through these things. So when I first read this parable, I really, I, I thought of it as an impossibility. Like I would never be able to turn the Rubik's Cube enough to make everything fall into place. But now I really do realize that I had it backwards from the beginning. This parable is not about me turning the cubes to make Jesus look the way I want him to. This parable is about Jesus turning the squares of my life to line up with the way that he's called me to be. And that's true for you. It's turning the squares so that you begin to take the shape of Christ. Scripture does not serve my personal purpose, but rather it's about Jesus turning the squares to put me in my place to serve His purposes, to redeem my selfish motivations, to give purpose to my work, to give hope to my relationships, to diminish my greed and turn it into kingdom giving, to flip my anxieties about my own future and resting in His will for my life and even my family. That's Jesus turning the squares. Over and over again for his glory and for my good. And he's doing the same for you tonight, turning each block of your life so that it will line up in a way that brings the most glory to him and brings the most good to you. And I want to offer this also as an invitation. I know some of you are kind of working through what is it that you believe. This is really an invitation to trust a good God, to trust a good God who has a good plan and provides a great community for you. To trust that He wants to work in your life, not, a, not just to overtake your life, but to give you life. And here's the generosity that you can count on. You know, the manager was unsure of what the master would do. But we are not unsure. We can count on the grace of God. You can count on the grace of God to bring true forgiveness into your life for all of your sins. You can count on the grace of God To bring forgiveness every single day. God's mercies are new every morning. And now you are commended by your master. Not because of your scheming. Not because of your good planning. But you're commended because you are covered in his son's righteous robes. In and through Jesus alone, who generously gave up his life... So that you can know the riches of God for all of eternity. That is generosity that you can count on for your days in college and beyond. Would you pray with me?